from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Alyssa Roberts. Today on the show, we're going to talk about big things and small things, loud things and fast things, things that kill and things that survive being killed. But we're doing it a little differently than normal. We're talking to two science enthusiasts, one scientist and one citizen scientist and radio show host, who've recently published books about superlatives and survival. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Alyssa Roberts. Each week on this program, we bring together researchers from different scientific fields and introduce them to each other to make connections. But that is not what we're doing today. That's because our host, Matthew LaPlante, wrote a book, and we're going to talk about it. Now, this wouldn't be undisciplined if we just let him talk about his research. That's why today I'm lucky enough to interview not one, but two science enthusiasts who channeled that enthusiasm into writing books. I'm hoping that, like the researchers we invite on this program every week, our guests today will be able to build some connections between the topics of their two books, which focus on the ways organisms are both superlative and strange. Joining us today from, in his words, somewhere in Pennsylvania, is One Arpagan, a science writer and professor of biology at Westchester University. He's the only one of our guests today who's been published in a scientific journal and the only one with a PhD. He's also the author of three books about science and one blog about science. One Bagan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be with you. And joining us in studio here at Utah Public Radio is our very own Matthew LaPlante, who is not only the creator and host of this very program, but also an associate professor of journalism and communication at Utah State University and the author of a new book, which promises to be the biggest, fastest, loudest, deadliest book you'll ever read. It's called Superlative, The Biology of Extremes, and it goes on sale April 30th. Hi, Matthew. I'm so excited to talk to you about your book. Hey, Alyssa. I'm excited to chat with you, and it's really weird being on this side of the interview. Let's start today with a conversation about the E word. That is rapper and fashion mogul Kanye West performing his 2009 song Stronger, which has been listened to over 500 million times on Spotify alone. West's chosen refrain on that track is a variation on the saying we now trace back to German philosopher Nietzsche, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. And that, One Pagan, is where you come in. Your book, Strange Survivors, How Organisms Attack and Defend in the Game of Life, focuses on the ways biological evolution has made us all survivors. But this isn't a fast process, and it isn't always pretty. In fact, sometimes it can be downright strange. One, I was instantly intrigued by the term strange survivors. Can you talk about what inspired that term? It's just that life, it's uh, awe-inspiring. Anything that you can examine about life, every tiny little critter, uh, you can find something strange in them. Perhaps the most strange thing uh, of all is that they're around and the resilience of life uh, in all its uh, many forms, as it were. One of the main points of your book is that all organisms have a primary mission, and this mission is divided into three parts. Can you walk us through what those are? Oh, yeah. So uh, anything, biology speaking, has uh, the, the, the primary, primary mission, as you say. Uh, first of all, to eat something. Okay. Second, try not to get eaten by something. 
And the third one is to reproduce with something <laughs> successfully. Uh, in biological terms, that's what life is all about. So in writing about the E word, as you call it, which I guess I should clarify refers to evolution in this case, you argue that every evolutionary strategy we know of involves avoiding death for as long as possible. You also describe evolution as a kind of biological arms race. Can you talk about what you mean by that? The main thing about avoiding death is just to stay alive for as long as possible until you reproduce. Okay, so that's kind of, we're of course personifying nature in that sense. When a population evolves, its genes change in such a way that certain combinations are more prevalent. Some of those combinations are translated into survival strategies. Okay, and in terms of evolutionary arms races, it's about attack and defense, attack and defense. Sometimes both are one and the same. There's sort of the sense of competition here, but obviously none of the competitors are really aware that it's going on, right? Oh, no, yeah, no, it's, it's not a, a conscious competition. It's, it's a numbers game. It's like a recursive loop. Uh, it keeps uh, enhancing and enhancing up to a certain limit. We also get to, to different extremes, and you've talked about the potential for this process to contribute to things like antibiotic-resistant bacteria and things that are legitimate problems for us yep. as humans, right? Oh, yeah, no, that's a very well-described uh, phenomenon. The antibiotic resistance is a real, real problem uh, in that sense. It's essentially the same thing. That's one of the reasons why when you are prescribed an antibiotic, they tell you, take the whole prescription. Even if you feel better, take the whole thing. Because if you leave uh, a few uh, enough resistant bacteria, they will reproduce. Uh, and that compounds the problem in the long run. So you discuss a lot of ways in the book that uh, organisms have developed to prevent their own deaths, which, as you say, is the ultimate goal. There are lots of really fun examples in here, but one that I really liked was the slow loris, which has elbow toxins. Can you talk about that? I I don't think ever has ever talked about elbow toxins before. So slow lorises, they are deceptively cute. Okay, they look cute, they look beautiful, but they have a mean streak. Actually, when they are kept uh, in captivity, they cannot keep, I don't know, two or three in a cage because they kill each other. The actual toxic component is similar to the allergen that many people sensitive to cats are sensitive to. So when they kind of lick the gland in their elbows, they coat their teeth with the secretion. The toxin itself It's, well, of course, toxic, but when it's mixed with the saliva of the loris, it becomes even more toxic. So it's it's something that they they have to investigate right now. But it's a really remarkable example. I I agree with you. One of my favorites. I'm just surprised that they can even lick their elbow. Well. I can do that. Actually, that's right. I've never thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Evidently, they're very flexible. (laughs) I wanted to also talk about um, your favorite non-human organisms, which are flatworms, I I think. Oh, yeah. Can you talk about how they fit into the bigger picture of strange survivors? If if this was uh, a tournament, they would be one of the champions. Uh, That's for for sure. Uh, One of the things is that, that many species, they don't seem to get old. 
Okay, all the biochemical markers for age, like senescence, things like that, many species they don't get old. So they, we are not even sure how long they will live. That's one thing. The second thing is that some species display a remarkable capacity for regeneration. These are the worms that you can cut their heads off and they, uh, they will regrow a new head uh, in time and they will regrow their nervous system, including their brain. Uh, that's a, a remarkable property, it's a, a really interesting property that if we were able to learn how to do that, think about, for example, people with brain damage due to accidents, strokes, things like that. You can cut one of these worms, the, war, the ones that are able to regenerate, in like 200 pieces. And if you kept in a protected environment and whatnot, with time, you will have complete worms. So they have a lot of things to teach us. And I have a soft spot for them because that's my own animal model, one of the main animal models that, that I work in research. And I, I have kind of built my career uh, on them. And I did want to ask you, too, um, we've talked about some of the different survival tactics that you discuss in the book, but you do argue that one is best of all. Can you tell us about that one? Well, cooperation. A misconception that many people have about evolution and the evolutionary processes is that it's all about competition, okay? And that's an idea that Darwin himself championed almost 200 years ago. But we have discovered many examples of evolutionary forces that depend on cooperation. Any of us, okay, uh, with only what nature gave us, it's no match for a saber-toothed tiger or an elephant, uh, nothing like that. Even highly intelligent people, one-on-one, I mean, there's, there's no competition. But many of us, with ideas and cooperation, look what, where we are right now, for good or bad. That's One Pagan, whose book Strange Survivors, How Organisms Attack and Defend in the Game of Life, provides insight into the processes that make everything on Earth better, faster, and stronger in order to survive. And it's available to order or read online through Amazon, Google Books, Barnes & Noble, and Target. One, I'd love it if you'd stay on the line while I talk with our next guest. Does that sound okay? Sure thing. All right. Now let's talk about superlatives. That is the uber-popular punk rock band Blink-182 smash hit All the Small Things, which perhaps coincidentally is the title of the second chapter in Matthew LaPlante's forthcoming book, Superlative, The Biology of Extremes. In Superlative, Matthew, of course, doesn't just talk about the small things. There are some big ones, along with some of the most smart, fast, loud, and deadly things that can be found on Earth. Matthew, you describe these natural outliers as biological Rosetta Stones, but you also point out that in scientific research, outliers are typically pretty undesirable. Can you tell me what made you decide to write about them? Yeah, I I woke up one night and I had this thought, like, I, I don't know where the thought came from, but it was one of those like really late night thoughts, which was, what is the oldest living thing in the world. And in my mind's eye, I kind of pictured a turtle for some reason. I was like, oh, it's got to be like a turtle or a tortoise something. And I rolled over and I opened up my laptop and I Googled it. And it turns out there's a lot of different answers to this question, depending on how you describe life. And one of the answers is this really 
old, really large interconnected Aspen forest in central Utah. It's like two and a half, three hours from my home. Almost immediately, I I headed down to see this thing and I became so enthralled with it. And then as it turns out, there were some professors at my university, Utah State University, who were working on research on this thing. So I connected with them and I just got so fascinated with the idea that here's this thing that's been there forever, for as long as we've been there, and we had roundly ignored it until just very, very recently. So much of your book, by definition, is a celebration of the diversity of natural life on this planet at every extreme. But as a researcher you talked to, John Umberto Madrid points out, in order to evolve to be alive right now, everything has survived a great deal of chaos. There's a lot of examples of this in the book, but is there one that you think exemplifies this idea particularly well? I think a lot about the cheetah. Um, which pretty much every elementary school kid can tell you is the is the fastest animal in the world. Now that's that's actually only true in a certain definition of fast. If adjusted for size, it's not anywhere close to the fastest organism in the world. In order for it to have evolved in that way, and for in order for it to have survived all of the chaos that is natural selection, it really had to be, essentially, because about 10,000 years ago, there was a really severe population bottleneck, not just for cheetahs, but for large mammals all across the globe. And cheetahs, they really shouldn't be alive at all, but they have been able to survive that chaos. And and that's why even though they're, they're now again approaching another population bottleneck, there's a pretty good bet that there's going to still be around in the years to come. There are life forms that can survive the chaos, so to speak, and there are some that may not, which is really sad when you consider how adorable axolotls are, which you talk about in the book, and how threatened their continued existence on this earth is. What do you hope people learn from this sort of harsh reality that they may not be forced to consider every day? Axolotls are just like the cutest little things in the world. They're just like these bubblegum pink little salamander looking things with kind of like a frilly mane and a big smile and they just look like perpetually happy and they are also super tough like wolverine in x-men kind of tough uh you know you can cut off their limbs and they'll grow them back and and they they've survived so much but they may not survive they may not survive us i guess what i hope people take away from this is that I think the responsibility that we have to take corrective actions is really, really clear. That we aren't just a part of the natural order of things. We ourselves are really an outlier, a very, very deadly, you could argue, the deadliest outlier. And if we want to live in a world in future generations where these other organisms exist, if we want to live in a world at all where we can exist because we rely on biodiversity, we really do need to think about our place in this world and what we want that place to be. You also make the argument that in many ways nature is way ahead of us in terms of speed, but also when it comes to aging well and maximizing size, big or small. Some life forms have even already developed compounds that could treat our diseases and process radioactive waste. Why is it so important to look at the ways nature has already solved some of the greatest problems that humans face? 
I think a lot of times we look for really complex solutions that if we just took a moment and spent more time with the great diversity of biological organisms in this world, we would find that there are a lot more simple solutions. Like nature's figured out a lot of stuff for us. And if we just took the time to spend a little more time researching it, especially where it exists on the outermost edges of the bell curve in these extreme areas of life, we're going to learn a lot. I gather you did a lot of traveling while researching this book, both right here in Utah, as you mentioned, and as far away as Ecuador. Out of all those research trips, do you have a favorite? No, I don't have a favorite because there were such great trips. I mean, I was I was in the Amazon River Delta in Colombia. I was in the bush in Ethiopia. And I spent some time with uh, dolphin researchers off the coast of Florida and with whale researchers off the coast of Oregon. And in each of the places that I landed, I learned so much. But I think if there's a story that... I can't tell out of these trips. It's about watching cheetahs run for the first time and seeing them spring into action. Going from just, I mean, cheetahs are lazy cats, right? They lay around all day. They, they kind of roll around in the dirt. But then when it's time to eat, they spring into action like nothing you've ever seen. I mean, it's just, it's so powerful and it's so exciting. And watching that for the first time really made me appreciate the opportunity that I had to be making these trips and having these experiences alongside these amazing biologists who were my guides. Something you wrote in the conclusion of the book really stuck out to me, and I think it sort of encapsulates what you've tried to do in Superlative. You write that, I will search for something greatest, and no matter what comes of that search, I will find something great. Can you talk about that idea? I think when you're looking for things that are the most extreme, you inevitably find things that will blow your mind. Even if you don't end up answering the question, in a lot of cases I didn't, I didn't end up answering the question of what's the slowest organism or what's the fastest organism or what's the largest organism. Sometimes there aren't answers to those questions that are really obvious. I still saw things that absolutely blew my mind. And I've had that experience with people who study microorganisms as well as I was trying to find like, what is the smallest of all microorganisms? And every single time, even if I don't get to observe that thing that is most extreme, I'm so blown away that I don't even care. That's Matthew LaPlante, whose forthcoming book, Superlative, The Biology of Extremes, is available in stores and online beginning April 30th. And without further ado, can I introduce you to someone who also loves science, Matthew? Yes, please. All right. Matthew, this is biology professor and expert in scientific strangeness, One Arpagon. And One, this is journalism professor and purveyor of superlatives, Matthew LaPlante. Hey, One, how you doing? I'm I'm fine. Very happy uh, to meet you. I'm 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 likewise very happy. One, you say you wrote your book with the semi-mythical, interested layperson in mind, and Matthew, I might argue you somewhat did the same thing. What does this mean, and why did you both choose to do it? You know the this uh, the famous uh, molecular biologist Francis Crick. Uh, he wrote a delightful book. It's titled The Scientific Pursuit, I believe. But he describes how he felt about science with what he called the gossip test. And the gossip test is something, uh, an indication of what you really like. 
it's the kind of thing that when you learn about it, you can't wait to go in, in the hallway and grab whomever and tell the person, guess what I learned? Isn't this thing cool? Okay. And that's how I feel about uh, the biological world. And I think I found a special kinship uh, in Matthew because I believe he finds it uh, fascinating as, uh, as I did. Oni used the word wonder, and I think it's very similar to the word that I most often use, which is awe. I I grew up in a church, and I grew up with you know occasional reminders, really really periodic reminders every Sunday that the world, the universe, is a really grand and amazing place with things that you can't really understand, but once in a while you can get a glimpse of, and. You know, as an adult, I've fallen away from organized religion, but I still yearn for that sense of awe. And it taps in exactly to the thing that thrills me about science and about the process of researching this book and about the process of reading your book. This idea that you see a glimpse of something bigger than yourself that you you can't explain in in, in completeness, but you got to share it. You, You almost can't help but share it. What made you addicted to that, that awe, that wonder? I don't know what to say in a neurobiological sense. I would say dopamine, but, <laughs> but in, in a more human sense, uh, I would say it's like sharing the happiness. I don't know how else to explain it. It's like, holy cow, this is incredibly cool. Do you think that more scientists should embrace that? I think we have this idea of scientists is these kind of stiff, stodgy people who like to talk with big words. That's not always the case, but mm-hmm. it is often the case. And oh, yeah, that, that's certainly the stereotype and uh, not so much a stereotype. I've met my share of people like that. But again, I believe that anybody can grasp that awe and wonder uh, for nature. Not only scientists, but I agree with you. Part of the success that people like Carl Sagan, for example, and Richard Dawkins, it's that they are able to convey that sense of wonder. That's what catches the eye of people like you and me. And I agree, many scientists should begin to think in those terms, but also the general public, because if we get more people kind of addicted to that, uh, in your words, I mean, this would be a, uh, a better world, I believe. One, you were listening in when I was talking to Matthew. Did you have any questions for him? Where do you get your ideas? I think it comes from my background as a community journalist. When I first started as a writer, I was writing for a very small town newspaper. Now, a lot of people look at small towns and they think, oh, how boring. But what I found oh, is yeah, that- Oh, no, no. I yeah. disagree. Oh, my God. No, no, no. Right, yeah. So you have the same mindset that like anywhere you go, you know, there's a person to talk to, there's a business to explore, there's a park to walk through, there are little kids playing games, there are ideas anywhere you go. And I think that's what made me successful as a community journalist is I just either I had a knack or I was I was being trained at that time because I had to fill the newspaper like every single week. You had to have stories. You can't have a newspaper not come out. So you have to have stories. So you have to constantly be looking around the world and asking questions. And, you know, I don't work in a small community newspaper anymore. I went on to a larger community newspaper. Now I work at a university and I do freelance writing. But I think I still look at the world with that same sort of questioning mind where I I just wonder the answers to things that I see. And because I have training as a journalist, I'm 
I'm nosy and I have an excuse to be nosy. So if I can't find an answer, I have no problem calling somebody up or walking into their office and and saying, hey, I'm Matthew LaPlante and I've got a question for you. And they're always weirded out at first. But then people are great. When you're curious about the things they do, they always want to talk about it. (laughs) I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I'm laughing because I've done pretty much the same thing. Okay, I I used to be very shy as a kid, but not anymore. I mean, I, I, I ask for things. The worst thing can say is no. (laughs) (laughs) I I do the same type of things. I wanted to ask you about flatworms. Um, And and I wanted to ask this because they're such fascinating organisms. And I think they're such, they have such high potential as model organisms, but they don't get as much research attention as as roundworms do. And as a lot of other model organisms do. And I'm, I'm wondering why you think that is because they are so amazing. I completely agree with you. Of course, I am biased because those are my worms, kind of. But, uh, but I agree with you. They they are underdeveloped. Uh, pardon the uh, the biological pun uh, as, a, as a research model. But that's changing uh, because of the people who are doing uh, making a, an effort to drive molecular biology as applied to this type of flatworms. Okay, and there's a lot of people working on that, and there's been a lot of progress in that sense. Also, uh, pharmacologists uh, have been attracted to flatworms as of lately, and uh, that's one of the things that I do in my own lab. I apply pharmacological techniques to screen for possible uh, pharmacological agents. And so it's a a model that is taking uh, traction uh, slowly but steady. And there's a lot of things coming that are really cool because uh, I went to a meeting of uh, the International Society for Planarian Biology, and I saw so many cool things that are in the pipeline for publication. Well, One, maybe we will have to have you on our regularly scheduled Undisciplined to talk about your flatworm research. Absolutely. I would be happy to do it. I'm going to have to cut the conversation off here. One Pagan, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. And Matthew LaPlante, thank you for being here. It was a pleasure to have this part of this experience. It was great. And thank you, One. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. Our producer is me, Alyssa Roberts. Our host is Matthew LaPlante. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Alyssa Roberts. Thank you so much for listening. Now go have big ideas.